and this is a tape of 20 September 1967, made on an island in the sea, and it is addressed to all staff and students of Scientology organizations. This 1968 will go down as the year the celebrities came into Scientology openly. Movie stars, the famous pops groups, great writers, wonderful people. Let me read you here uh, some of the uh, great international names who joined Scientology and benefited from its processes. Sammy Davis, Jr., the singer. Ray Bradbury, the famous science fiction writer. Salvador Dali, the painter and sculptor. Countess Gisela Von Thiel, the South African. Leonard Cohen, the poet and folk singer. Eula Nice, the Vogue model. William Burroughs, the famous author. I was down in the restaurant. I sang, oh, there it goes again. Oh, oh, there it goes again. I sing the restaurant. Oh, and I was just sitting there my own. Oh, and all of a sudden, it's on our right arm fell off. And it's right, well, oh, 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 my God. Welcoming back return guest, Dr. Benway to uh, discuss quite a different topic from what we explored in the previous episode he appeared on, which was evidence-based medicine. Um, This time we will be uh, turning to somewhat stranger and uh, more obscure areas of contemporary knowledge and science, um, specifically the world of Scientology. So the continued theme will be science, but um, this time in a in a rather different uh, sub area of that. So anyway, Dr. Benway is, um, I would imagine, one of the uh, most widely read people in the world, um, perhaps in the ex- extended oeuvre of the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. And um, I, I think this tends to be something that's... Uh, people are somewhat mystified by. So um, perhaps we could uh, begin just by, um, you know, having you recount your engagement with um, Hubbard's work and um, what your your major discoveries have been. Yeah, I, I think um, I definitely, I, I've definitely read a lot of Hubbard, but I think one of the things that, um, one of the areas of his work that's neglected by a lot of his biographers, both um, friendly and critical, is the inordinate amount of audio material that he produced. Um, he, I think his major output through most of his life was uh, taped and later CD recorded lectures that were a kind of currency within the church and, and were one of the major products that were sold to, to churchgoers. So so, so I've, I've, I just want to bring that up as a way of indicating that a lot of my um, a lot of my understanding of Hubbard, his development over the course of his life and, and conclusions I've drawn from that is based on uh, listening to to a very large amount of audio material, which has somehow been preserved. It's, anyway, I'll leave that there for a moment. But so, yeah, I think um, my engagement with Hubbard began about 20 years ago when a friend of mine bet me that I couldn't read all of Battlefield Earth, which is his... Uh, seminal science fiction novel. It was his return to science fiction after having spent um, 10 or 20 years primarily producing religious texts for the Church of Scientology. 
and and it's a it's the subject of one of the worst movies that's ever been made, um, starring John Travolta and um, uh, some nameless guy who was never in anything else in Cuba Gooding Jr. Um, and uh, so anyway, so he bet me that I couldn't read this book, but then he insisted that I, he, he demanded in order for me to get paid for having won the bet that I somehow prove that I had read the book. So I wrote a blog um, summarizing events in the book um, over several posts. And, and, and I started to apprehend that perhaps there was something deeper and more systematic to the apparently banal work of this avuncular cretin um, and that that led me on to, to exploration of text and Scientology and particularly of these audio recordings, which I spent um, a lot more of my life listening to than I think was advisable for me in particular or for anybody under any circumstances. But over the course of that extensive engagement with Scientology, I, I, uh, I don't know, I've, in terms of things that I've concluded or things that I've been able to understand through that, I guess um, one of the... I think one of the most important um, series of aural texts in Scientology are, are, are the a series of lectures that are called the Class Eight Course, and these were um, delivered by Hubbard aboard the flagship Apollo in the Mediterranean to a class of auditing students who had arrived from orgs all over the world. Um, to be trained at, at, at the, 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 throughout its existence, Scientology has continually elaborated new levels that people are supposed to be able to get to because as people populate the currently highest one, it becomes apparent that they're not actually capable of time travel and they still get cold and stuff like that. So they have to, they have to create new levels and they also have to keep people coming in and keep the people who have already become members of the church active and engaged and enthusiastic. So at the time they had gotten up to class eight. Um, I think they're now past class 12. But the class eight course students were all people who were, you know, top-notch auditors in their in their local courses and were arriving to be instructed in um, what Hubbard at the time called standard tech. Tech technology and the word technology in Scientology has kind of a it has a somewhat different um, range of meanings than it does for for most people in conventional speech, but, uh, although I believe, and, and we may touch on this, but although somewhat similar perhaps to the work of, uh, philosophers such as Michel Foucault. Yes. Yeah, so how, they, how they use the term technology. Yes. Foucault. So, so I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, okay. So, so the class eight course, which, which, which I was talking about a second ago is about, um, instructing auditors in standard tech and tech stands for technology. And in the context of Scientology, you know, Foucault has this taxonomy of, tech, of technologies. There's technologies of um, production. There's technologies of science systems. There's technologies of power, which allow control of um, other people. And then there's technologies of the self, which, which allow the, the development of the individual, right? And so I think in, in the context of Scientology, usually when when auditors around Ron Hubbard or other um, people within the church are talking about technology, they're representing it as they, rep, they, they uniformly represent Scientology processing as a technology of the self, as a means of achieving progress on what's called the bridge to total freedom. So, so, so there were a number of points over the course of, I mean, so let's, let's recall that the movement, the, the religion now called Scientology really begins in 1950 in the form of Dianetics, which was a, um, a form of, 
I guess bowdlerized psychoanalysis is a, is, an, is a decent way to describe it. It was a form of um, interpersonal therapy that Hubbard developed that was it retained clearly psych, elements that were clearly drawn from psychoanalytic techniques, but didn't, but was sort of stripped of any of the, um, the intellectual apparatus of psychoanalysis. And that was replaced with a much more um, simplistic understanding of how human minds worked. And so, it, so if you want a good idea of what um, Dianetics looks like, I, the, the movie, um, the master from 2012, I think, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix gives a really brilliant evocation of what Scientology looked like before e-meters and the way that people um, interacted with each other to produce therapeutic results before they had uh, before they adopted the e-meter as, as one of their sort of core tools for processing. So, so, so everything begins in the 50s with Dianetics, right? But periodically... Hubbard loses control over what's going on. And the, the transition from Dianetics to Scientology arose basically because he didn't retain any, um, he, he hadn't built structures for him to retain any control over what people who were practicing Dianetics were actually doing. All he had retained was the rights to the book Dianetics. So th that movement was taken in a lot of different directions and Hubbard wanted to have more control over it and to prevent what he, um, in his later career called squirreling, which in Scientology means heresy. Um, so he rebranded the whole thing as Scientology and, and, and built it in a way that allowed him to retain a lot more personal control over what was going on. And likewise, in 1968, when the class eight course is happening, it's another one of these moments in Scientology where there's a lot of squirreling going on. Hubbard has kind of lost control over what people are doing and he wants to bring people back into um, the, uh, the, he wants to bring practitioners back into the fold and make sure that everybody's dogmatically consistent. Um, and so he invents this thing called standard tech. And one of the, so standard tech is not just um, a consistent dogma, but it's also held to produce completely standard results. So the notion is that, you know, if you're squirreling, maybe 87% of your preclears will improve to some degree, which is better than the 30% that he gives psychoanalysis credit for. But if you're practicing standard tech, then 100% of them will always make gains and respond. Let's just, um, um, for those unaware, yeah. uh, let's define pre-clear. Oh yeah, this is, so this is a really confusing term. So pre-clear in um, the earliest forms of Dianetics and Scientology, pre-clear referred to people who hadn't yet attained the state of clear. And at that time, the state of clear was the object. So once you got there, it was supposed to be over. But as I said before, it was necessary to perpetually move the goalposts as it were and create higher and higher standards that people could potentially progress to through the practice of Scientology. And so the, so, so clear was rapidly eclipsed as the final goal, but people who, uh, so, so at, at this point, the clearing course, which leads to the state of being clear is sort of an introductory component of Scientology, but because the term pre-clear had been adopted in the early years to refer to supplicants, you know, to people who are, who are being audited for the sake of advancing their case, as it's called. Um, laterally, it was applied to anyone who was being audited. So to the extent that you're a subject of auditing, you're a pre-clear, even if you long ago passed the stage of clear. Um, so so, the, so, what's really interesting about the, there's, I guess there's two general areas of the class A course lectures that are really interesting. One of them is the one that superficially fascinated me 
because it's so outre and bizarre. And that's the sort of cosmological background for, for Scientology that I think a lot of people are familiar with at this point because it was leaked to the public. And it also, um, and Paul Haggis talked about it in his piece describing his disillusionment with Scientology. And it was also the subject of a South Park episode. Um, but this whole legend of Zemu, the galactic overlord, and uh, the relationship of his activities in prehistory to contemporary life. And we can talk about that if you want. Um, but the, the other aspect of the classic course that's so fascinating with respect to the development of standard tech is the way that um, new disciplinary procedures are created and insisted upon as, as a standard of practice for auditors. So I think those are the two areas in which I found engaging with that material the most fruitful. Yeah, so, um, I mean, a few things that are, might be worth um, pointing out or commenting on here. I mean, one that's one one point that's interesting is, um, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the the point of um, this at least beginning as a kind of valorized psychoanalysis. Um, first of all, <clears throat> a couple things. One, you know, it's interesting how the, the process you're describing of kind of, um, you know, these various points at which sort of squirreling emerges and then has to be reined in um, or excommunicated is extremely similar to what happens in various psychoanalytic schools in the same, you know, across the 20th century, um, including the Lacanian school, which was more or less contemporary in its origins. Um, so it is, it is interesting the way this kind of um, reproduces those uh, dynamics. Um, and so, you know, one way to think about this is this, this kind of strange, um, this, this kind of strange parallel world to uh, certain, I suppose, more respectable developments in modern intellectual life, um, you know, where this whole kind of system of thought and, and practice is developed and then um, is, is sort of repeatedly um, is, is reformulated and, you know, various kinds of orthodoxies and, and um, dogmas are, are constructed in order to um, ensure a kind of continuity. Um, so that's one point that's kind of interesting. Another that, that might be worth getting into a little bit in relation to what we're going to get into later is um, the fact that, uh, you know, although in many ways Hubbard kind of lifted a great deal from psychoanalysis, which was sort of the, the dominant paradigm, not only in sort of therapy, but in psychiatry at, at, in mid-century United States. Um, yet, you know, he was also, uh, and, you know, continu Scientology continues to be basically the last holdout of this movement that started in that period, which was anti-psychiatry, which, I mean, returning to Foucault, you know, was one of the most prominent figures in that movement. Um, and so it might be worth talking about, you know, um, how Scientology also became a uh, part of the anti-psychiatry movement and um, how that relates to what, what Hubbard was attempting to do in general. Yeah. Um, in terms of the fragmentation of, of psychoanalytic schools in the 20th century, I mean, I think the thing that occurs to me is that the it's easy to imagine that happening with Scientology, right? It's easy to imagine, you know, like the, as, as many different religious movements have fragmented in their early years and over time, 
Um, and I think the main reason it didn't happen was because of Hubbard's exceptional brutality and his absolute intolerance of any kind of heresy. I mean, the things that he did to people, um, he was, for example, uh, banished by the Spanish government from the port of Valencia for his habit of chucking uh, underlings overboard, bound and gagged into the sea and rescuing them at the point of drowning, um, which I guess the Spanish considered to be an unacceptable practice. So um, I think the only reason that we don't have, you know, the Reformed Church of Scientology, the, the Fundamentalist Church of Scientology, et cetera, is just because he was so singularly um, uh, aggressive and intolerant and his successor, David Miscavige, is even more so. Um, but, uh, so to get into the anti-psychiatry aspect of it, yeah, so Hubbard actually, um, recalled his father was a naval officer and in his childhood, the family took an, uh, a sea voyage from Europe back to the, where his father was stationed back to the United States. And during that time, Hubbard spent a lot of time with this guy called, um, uh, I think his first name was Fred Thompson and his last name was Thompson, but his nickname was snake. And he was a American um, military officer who had been sent to study psychoanalytic techniques with Freud. And um, Hubbard's recollection is that uh, snake Thompson practiced his psychoanalytic skills on Hubbard for the entire eight week voyage or however long it was um, back to the States. So he had this early and apparently fairly traumatic experience with uh, psychoanalysis. And it seems like, the, I mean, it's interesting because um, Scientology is presented as a solution to, not only to the problems of mental health, but also to the ills and excesses of psychiatry in general. Um, and this is true throughout Hubbard's career. And he really, um, he, he began doubling down on this in the late sixties in a fairly serious way in that his, um, his, he, he gave an annual uh, radio or, you know, an annual audio address to the church, which was distributed in tape form and played in orgs. And I, I think it's his annual address from 1967 in which he announces um, that the church is from now on going to adopt a focus on human rights and specifically the human rights of people who are um, in what he described at the time as psychiatric death camps. Um, and so, so, so he, he, he encourages his followers in this address to do, to, to, I guess this, this sort of events is a little bit about how he thinks the mind works. What he asked them to do is to respond to anyone who is critical of Scientology by accusing them of being in favor of psychiatric death camps. And his notion here is that through a kind of morphic resonance or something similar. He calls it a stimulus response loop. Um, if enough Scientologists do this frequently enough, it will become part of the unconscious furniture of culture that to attack the Church of Scientology is to support psychiatric human rights violations. So I guess it's, on the one hand, he, he actually is an anti-psychiatrist, like he actually believes that um, and, and, and to be fair, like, let's, let's recall the anti-psychiatry anti movement had a firm basis because the things that were being done and were considered normal and, you know, not to require informed consent across the board in the United States were pretty horrific. And you don't need to look far for compelling accounts of what, what that kind of world could be like with the cuckoo's nests, you know, et cetera. Um, so, so he was very much against, he was against the excesses of psychiatry. He was also against psychiatry in general and wanted to replace it with something that that looked sort of similar in that um, 
in that it's an interpersonal form of dialogic therapy, but he didn't want it to be animated by, um, I mean, I guess like, the, like I said before, the sort of intellectual infrastructure that he wants to replace things like psychoanalysis with is vastly, vastly simpler um, and doesn't invoke anything like the sort of complexity or ambiguity or <clears throat> um, sort of occult nature that a lot of psychoanalytic concepts had. Um, but he also, in addition to being an actually anti-psychiatric, he also uses psychiatry as a, as a sort of foil for Scientology um, in various contexts. Yeah, there was a recent article um, that was about the, that, that I'll link in the show notes, but I, I can't remember if I sent it to you, but it's, um, it's about, you know, the, the history of, of Scientology's association with the anti-psychiatry movement and how, you know, what's interesting is it's still, you know, they still run this museum of the horrors of psychiatry in, in Hollywood. And, um, you know, they've more or less continued this line of messaging. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, since psychiatry essentially became, um, I mean, less, less predominantly about institutionalization, although, you know, very much more so about um, sort of medicalization of, um, all sorts of, you know, emotional and mental states through pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, much of the left, which was critical of um, of the earlier mode of psychiatry and, you know, the anti-psychiatry movement was a sort of broadly left-wing one, um, has largely ceased being critical of, of psychiatry in its current form. And anyway, this is what the article argues that, you know, basically... Scientology is now the only um, it's it's now the only remaining uh, voice of this anti-psychiatry movement, um, which, you know, I suppose superficially some might imagine is because, well, the, the real problems with psychiatry, i.e., you know, forced uh, confinement and so on were were largely solved. But, you know, there are many respects in which that isn't true. So anyway, I mean, um, it's interesting. So that, that actually kind of. This is a bit of a tangent, but um, there's a one of the most fascinating things about Scientology is the way that its dis, its internal disciplinary procedures are, um, in many respects, harbingers of things that ultimately become mainstream, and also the way in which you can. It's very very easy to imagine once you understand how the internal disciplinary system of Scientology works. It's very easy to imagine it having been applied generally across the Western corporate world. And I think the main reason it wasn't was because Hubbard was so crazy. But if he had been more normal and more charismatic and more interested in um, disseminating his doctrine and seeing it put into practice, that probably would have happened. And that was one of his ambitions. One of his ambitions was to spread this stuff across the, the business world in order to increase productivity and efficiency in business. But, but another, what you were just saying about um, the way that, you know, psychiatry is shifted over the last 60 years away from things like incarceration and electrocution and frontal lobotomy, but has simultaneously increased the range of its sort of biopolitical powers over different kinds of emotional states that weren't, or, or, or you know, states of mood or whatever that didn't used to be considered part of the spectrum of the pathological, um, reminds me of the way that, uh, that Hubbard's already doing that when the psychiatrists are still doing lobotomies and they haven't yet invented, you know, the, one of the one of the interesting things about the successive revisions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, is that every time it's revised, 
the Venn diagrams overlap each other more. And so in the fifth edition, it's very hard to see where there's any space left for normality, right? Where there's any space left where you, you don't have some kind of condition that, that is diagnosable and relatable to some kind of treatment plan. Um, the DSM-5 only came out a couple of years ago, but Scientology already had that in place with the system of conditions. Um, and I'm using that term in its Scientological sense, which I'll explain in a second in the 60s. So, so the, the condition system in Scientology is I can't actually remember all of them, but they're, you know, if you're, if you're not doing well with your processing, then, you're, then you, may, you, you may be assigned a condition of doubt. And if you get assigned, assigned like for whatever condition you're assigned, there's a therapeutic remedy that's um, proposed for it. But, um, and we, we don't need to go into them in, in detail because they're very formulaic, but whereas if you're in a condition, you know, if, you, if your org is running well and you're getting lots of PCs in the door and you're making gains with their processing, then you might be in a condition of affluence. But every Scientologist is in some condition at all times and you can be moved up or down um, at a moment's notice and what condition you were in yesterday has no import for the, for the condition that your um, ethics officer decides to assign to you today. So it's, so it's, another, it's, it's, it's a way in which um, in a, Scientology is anti-psychiatric, but it also in the evolution of its disciplinary processes kind of anticipates what eventually is gonna happen with psychiatry. Yeah, and I mean, this is another another sense in which it, you know, um, it's it's again an interesting kind of it's almost like a shadow side of of various sorts of um, you know broader tendencies, um, and so that you know that might be one sort of selling point for why it's um, why it's worth paying attention to because it it kind of allows us to track things that are happening that you know things are occurring in such a strange and extreme way and. Um, in the Scientology context that um, it sort of helps us um, make sense of things that were happening or later happened on a broader scale. Is that, is that a fair way of putting it? Definitely. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, I think this gives a kind of good overview of, you know, some of the things that might be interesting about this um, field of research. Um, you know, it's also worth noticing that, you know, there, there has been, obviously there was Lawrence Wright's, um, book and then the documentary based on it. Um, and, you know, there have been a few recent attempts to, um, you know, kind of write about it um, from the outside and, uh, you know, kind of kind of go beyond the, the superficial version of it that tends to be um, disseminated. And, you know, for a long time, this was apparently impossible because they would actually, you know, anyone who tried to do any kind of journalism or you know, academic investigation of what Scientology was doing, they would basically ruin their lives, right? I mean, I think they still do that. I'm a little worried about you. That, yeah. <laughs> You're I mean, a bit worried about this. Right, right. I mean, at least I have a pseudonym, you know? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Hmm. Well, yeah, um, we'll have to figure I mean, out Lawrence how Wright, to... Uh, in yeah. an interview about that, about that book, Lawrence Wright said that, you know, he felt like the only reason that he could do this was because he had the New Yorker behind him and they have a well-equipped legal division that were perfectly right. happy, like they were slavering at the bit, you know, were chafing at the bit to take on Scientology. But yeah, um, I mean, you write a dissertation on this stuff and like, they'll kill your fucking dog. Right. right, right. So yeah, anyway, I, I believe a lot of that is recounted in Wright's books. So people can check that out if they haven't. It's definitely a very good read. Um, but the thing we we really wanted to dive into here was uh, a sort of peculiar um, connection that I think also brings us to 
the way that um, Hubbard and Scientology are kind of linked to various uh, sort of cultural and intellectual tendencies that that might not initially be um, that might not initially be obvious or, or something people would suspect. So, um, you know, the first the first point that's probably worth dwelling on is, um, you know, there was kind of this period in the 60s, as I understand it, when I mean, quite a, obviously now we're, we're familiar with um, you know the 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 um, prevalence of of celeb of Hollywood celebrities in in the church, but um, in the in the '60s, it sort of attracted a a much wider range of of sort of notable people, um, sort of musicians, writers, artists, intellectuals, um, and so it it had a certain allure and um, attraction that. Um, that pulled in quite a few people, at least for, at least for short periods. And one of those people was William S. Burroughs. So um, first of all, you know, there, there is a book on the subject, um, which I believe is called Scientologist exclamation point. Yeah. By David Wills. It's the, it's the, it's the only, well, I mean, it's the only published account of yeah. uh, this engagement, it's extraordinarily thorough. Um, yeah, and definitely the only the only available resource for the student of Burroughs' interaction with Scientology. So, right. David Wills deserves credit for that. Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of, I mean, and again, people can, um, I will, I will link to that book so people can check it out. But um, just as an overview, what is what is the basic rundown of Burroughs' engagement with um, Scientology? So it's a little, it, I mean, Wills does an, an extraordinary job of kind of pinning down the chronology exactly. Um, it begins in the 50s when uh, Burroughs was living in the in the international zone in Tangiers, which at the time was, I guess, a sort of hotbed of intellectual and creative ferment for um, Western expatriates. Um, and while he was there, he met, or he was a patron of the restaurant of uh, a, um, paint, a visionary uh painter named Brian Geisen, which was called The Thousand and One Nights. And although they didn't immediately hit it off, um, Burroughs and Geisen were to go on to form um, an extraordinarily productive, creative uh, friendship that lasted until Geisen's death. Um, so Geisen was uh, aware of and experimenting with Dianetic techniques during his time in Tangiers and had um, some other I'm, I'm trying to remember the specific people who, so, so it's not completely clear who exactly introduced Burroughs to um, Geisen, but uh, I, Will's hypothesis is that um, it's, uh, it, it, there's this couple named John and Milan Cook who were early Dianeticists and were in Tangiers. It's coincidentally, uh, John is supposedly the person who suggested to Hubbard that he can reconfigure Dianetics as a religion rather than sort of a self-help practice. Um, they introduced Geisen to Scientology before John Skelton was paralyzed by a mysterious illness that he apparently attributed to a Muslim curse. Um, and uh, so anyway, long story short, there's a lot of um, lurid stuff, but long story short, uh, Geisen is responsible for introducing Burroughs to Scientology when they later became friends, when they were both living at the Beat Hotel in Paris in the late 50s. Burroughs starts writing to 
Allen Ginsberg about the value of Scientology processing and the necessity that Ginsberg quote get himself run end quote meaning you know run 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 means to 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 be run means to be subjected to Scientology auditing and processing. Um, so 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 Burroughs is clearly aware of Scientology, believes that it has value and is a real technology of the self in the Foucauldian sense, um, and has either met someone with an e-meter or bought an e-meter or somehow has, has used these techniques, but not in the context of um, actual participation in the church at all in the late 50s. And um, I think in, in, I think 67, he was writing a column for the recently founded pornographic magazine Mayfair and living in London. And he decided to go, um, as he put it, undercover with the editor of Mayfair um, to the St. Hill Manor, which was the, um, at this point, the, 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 the terrestrial nervous uh, center of the Scientology nervous system is St. Hill Manor um, in England. And the actual sort of uh, beating heart of the religion is hovered aboard the flagship Apollo, which is kind of aimlessly peregrinating around the Mediterranean throughout the late 60s. Um, so Hubbard's not there, he's on the boat. But Burroughs uh, infiltrates St. Hill Manor pretending to be a prospective preclear with uh, this guy Masterson, the editor of Mayfair, and decides that what he, and at, at, before, before visiting St. Hill Manor, he describes Scientology as, quote, a highly effective technology in the hands of assholes, end quote. Um, he then uh, actually joined some, uh, some formal processing courses in 1968 and um, in a brief but fairly productive period wrote a decent number of um, encomia intended for use within the church and on potential converts where in uncharacteristically normal prose he lays out the virtues of Scientology practices as he's experienced them and tells people that they should join up and get audited. Um, and then by uh, 69, he's beginning to become disillusioned with the whole thing. Um, I think because he, mo most simply because um, he's like, you can imagine someone like Willis Bros is not the ideal subject of Scientology, right? Like he's, he's definitely not gonna um, take, the, he's, he's actually, what he is is he's the opposite of the ideal subject for standard tech. He's not the person who is going to respond in a standard way to standard processing, nor is he gonna apply it in a standard way if he's, the auditor, right? And so fairly quickly at St. Hill, he came to the attention of uh, the ethics office, which is the primary sort of internal disciplinary structure of Scientology, and then was subjected to repeated um, security checks, which are abbreviated SEC checks in uh, Scientology. And these are situations where the, um, the emitter is used most almost exclusively as a lie detector, where you have to go through this complicated ritual interrogation and the whole, you know, you're holding onto these electrodes the whole time and there's someone monitoring the resistance of your skin to determine whether you're, um, whether you're lying or not. So uh, he had to go through a bunch of sex checks. He had to do a, um, a, 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 a routine called the Joburg because it was invented in Johannesburg, which was an early center of Scientology, which is a kind of further level of disciplinary proceeding. And through all this, he, he became more, um, he became increasingly disillusioned with Scientology and decided that while he continued to believe that its techniques were effective until the end of his life, that, that the 
um, that Hubbard's autocratic rule was kind of antithetical to the um, sort of very naive enlightenment view of science that Burroughs held. So, I mean, his, his, his and he ended up writing a, writing a series of public uh, repudiations of Scientology in which his main um, challenge was one that it's autocratic and um, harsh discipline is applied inflexibly and arbitrarily, but two, and most importantly, that Hubbard was not uh, free in disclosing his methods or results to the community of interested seekers of truth in general, um, which is what Burroughs, I think, reasonably thought that anyone who had a truly effective technology of the self would do with it. Um, so I guess, so the, in, term, in the Foucauldian terms, I guess the easy way to say it is that over the course of his engagement with Scientology, Bur Burroughs apprehends it as a, as a technology of the self. He uses it that way in ways that he finds productive. As he becomes increasingly formally engaged with the church, he realizes that there's also a pretty substantial technology of power going on. And given that his entire life was spent searching for ways to disrupt technologies of power and escape from their influence, he, um, he did an about face and, and became completely disillusioned with the church as a, as a formal entity. Great. So <clears throat> that's sort of the, again, the rundown of, of what, you know, is the, the facts of their relationship and of, of his relationship to Scientology and the, um, the sort of um, general biographical background. Um, so you've sort of been um, immersed in trying to explore this connection further um, in, in perhaps you know, less directly biographical ways um, that, uh, that, you know, have to do with kind of the continuities of um, what Burroughs, you know, finds in Scientology and the sort of aims of his various literary projects. So perhaps we could get into that since I think yeah, that's so where your, uh, your orig truly original contributions come in. Well, this is, this is the subject of my continually revised uh, manuscript, um, which will someday be published as the fifth installment of a blog that uh, no one reads um, or will ever read. So, but maybe you can link to that when it comes out. Um, so, which will be, I don't, you know, at this point be never, but anyway. Um, so I guess the, what got me thinking about, um, what got me more interested in interrogating the connections between Burroughs and Hubbard below the sort of superficially biographic level was a sort of close reading of um, one of the lectures in the class eight course, which is called assists and assists is the sort of uh, it's one of the source texts for um, Scientology's myth of origin for the, for the, for the earth. Um, so I'm going to run over that quickly to explain why it strikes me as pertinent to thinking about Burroughs and his projects and the subsequent development of the Church of Scientology. So um, in, in assists, uh, it's kind of an extraordinary lecture and I recommend that anybody who's interested listen to it. You can, uh, it's been leaked by um, various different organizations, but uh, it's, you can definitely find it on the internet. So assists purports to be a simple and straightforward lecture that's gonna be about um, things that you do outside of the auditing session. So things that, so, so in order to have a successful auditing session, the PC has to be well rested. They have to have had some food. They have to be interested in being audited. They have to be in a comfortable chair. Like everything's gotta be 
sort of teed up for success, right? Because you're going to try to do some kind of major work on this person's inner being. So you need all the, you, you can't have any distractions. So assist covers situations where those conditions can't be obtained. So, so situations where someone's been just been physically injured or is having a sort of acute psychotic break or other, other circumstances where you're, you're not going to be able to set up the ideal conditions of the auditing session. And so Hubbard starts talking about, you know, like what you do when someone's bumped their foot on a lawnmower. And there's a lot of kind of homeopathic resonances in here. So the, the touch assist is the most basic form of assist. And ideally what you do is touch the person's uh, knee to the lawnmower that they bumped again and again and again and again until you run out the engram of bumping your knee on the lawnmower. This is kind of a, a, a physical representation of what auditing is supposed to do in general, psychologically. Um, but he very quickly veers into, into really, really bizarre territory. And I wonder, I mean, there's, there's documentation from this period that he was taking lots of drugs. Um, he at one point in a letter, I think to his wife, it's about uh, getting through the day with lots of rum and lots of pinks and blues. Um, so who knows what that means in 1968, but, but there's probably, a, and, and, and when you listen to the other lectures and then you listen to this one, it's hard not to imagine that he's enhanced somehow because he really goes above and beyond his usual um, flights of oratory. So he veers very quickly into this completely bizarre myth that he seems to assume some familiarity with from the audience, but it's unclear whether they actually have ever heard this before. And the, the, it, it, it forms the basis of um, the existence of body thetans, which people, anyone with any interest in Scientology has probably heard of, but they're the sort of malignant souls that infest your body and cause a lot of your physical and psychological problems. So where all those souls come from is, um, 76 million years ago, uh, this part of the universe was ruled by a galactic confederacy. It had a tyrant by the name of Zimu, um, although it's other places written Zinu. And um, as a means of addressing overpopulation, he uh, rounded up most of the populace of the galactic confederation, brought them all to earth, which at the time was called Tigiak. Um, and these people, it's important to understand, have all been exteriorized. So their physical bodies are, um, most of their physical bodies, most of them don't have physical bodies. They're just disembodied thetans that have been preserved in um, a special kind of crystalline matrix. So they, they're brought to earth where they're all mixed up. Like they're, they're literally different. They're, they're put in boxes and the boxes are exchanged like, you know, like a game of three card Monty or something or a shell game in order to further confuse the Thetans and um, kind of de-individualize them. Then they're all stacked around um, volcanoes all over the earth. And the volcanoes are reinforced with hydrogen bombs, which are then detonated. Oh, sorry. So, so before, but before the detonation, this is the key part before the, before the Thetans are um, uh, strapped to the volcanoes, which are then blown up with hydrogen bombs they're what's called implanted. So, and this, this means that their um, implantation in, in Scientology refers to the imposition of um, thoughts or narratives that are not yours by a sort of, by, by a hostile external force. So it's basically like, it's basically brainwashing. Um, and, it, and Hubbard considers it to be sort of one of the basic techniques of warfare of the space opera societies that he talks about. Um, so bef before the Thetans are blown up, they're subjected to, um, 
it's difficult but important to describe exactly what this looks like. So there, it's not explained what any of the physical infrastructure for this is. So you have to just imagine whatever you need to in order to imagine that this is possible. But the Thetans are um, subjected to, Hubbard describes it as a 3D super colossal motion picture in which every image is accompanied with a word. And the, the narrative of the motion picture contains various uh, false stories about why the apocalypse that's about to happen has happened and who's been its author and what will be its consequences. It also contains the sort of basic cultural material for most of um, Western European humanity. So like, for example, the um, all of Christianity is, is part of this implant. And um, one of the things that that means is that Hubbard can subsequently interpret uh, religious activity in general, but Christian religious activity in particular as um, what he calls dramatizing. And dramatizing is when you, when you act out an engram or an implant. Um, so, so they're subjected to this, this concatenation of words and images that profoundly alters their structure as subjects and fills them. And we have to, you have to remember that in Scientology, Thetans are immoral and go through an infinite number of reincarnations, right? So, so what, what's been done to these Thetans is that their, uh, their kind of extracorporeal capacity to understand where they've been or where they're going is completely vitiated by this bizarre farrago of words and pictures. Then they get strapped to the volcanoes and blown up and uh, distributed throughout the atmosphere and surrounding space of the earth. And that's why this is such a fucked up place is because if you're a Thetan and you're here, these Thetans immediately end up getting glommed onto you in various different ways. And as you go through successive reincarnations, you accumulate more of them. And so, so he brings this up because part of the work of an assist in someone who's behaving psychotically is sometimes to attempt to discharge some of the body things that are making them as crazy as they are right now. So that ultimately you can do proper auditing on the individual person um, after you've rid them of all their body things. Right. Um, but the, so the thing that, that arrested my attention in this after listening to it for the 75th time, because I have a brain disease that makes me do things like that um, is that the way that Hubbard describes the super colossal motion picture that confers the implants that structures the subjectivity of the Thetans thereafter is remarkably similar to um, many aspects of Burroughs' work, right? So one thing that immediately occurs is the, the cut-up method, which most people who are familiar with Burroughs at all will, will understand, but is something that Burroughs and Geisen hit upon at the Beat Hotel where Geisen was slicing up some newspapers with a Stanley knife and Burroughs realized that you could combine them in all these different random ways and that the text that they produced was sort of haunting and interesting and funny. Burroughs um, subsequently became, I mean, he, he, he wrote several books using this method um, and he was convinced that it had the power to both predict and disrupt reality. Um, the other thing that it reminds one of is uh, the, the Mayan caper, which is a short chapter in, um, oh, I'm blanking. I want to say it's in the soft machine, but I'm not completely sure. Uh, so the Mayan caper is a William S. Burroughs story that, that's a pretty standalone piece, but he makes reference to it in various other works. And the, the notion in the Mayan caper is that um, a, uh, a sort of film noir private detective type character 
goes back in time to try to understand what's going on with the Mayans. And it becomes apparent that the, um, that the system of Mayan hieroglyphs encodes a, is itself a control structure that operates like a machine to produce appropriate subjects of, um, of, of the Mayan control system, right? So, so to produce like agrarian peasants or whatever else the machine needs. And the, the Burroughs protagonist learns to disrupt it by um, essentially performing cut-ups on Mayan society and juxtaposing words and images that don't ordinarily belong together and then feeding them back into the machine, which causes it to destroy itself, right? So, so the, the, the homology that I'm gesturing towards here is that um, Burroughs and Hubbard share this core notion that um, language can be used to produce predictable, and I think both would have said like physiological results in human nervous systems. And also that, and Bur Burroughs is more committed to this than Hubbard, but also that language itself um, encodes control systems, that, that it is the responsibility of any person who wants to be free to find means of disrupting and evading. Um, Bur Burroughs thinks of, Bur Bur Burroughs' approach to this problem, right? The existence of language, it's, a, it's, its capacity to be used as a system of control and its controlling effects on individuals is, is to explore things like the cut-up method Scientology, orgone theory, apomorphine, um, which he hopes at various different levels of intervention will disrupt the system such that it cannot function to produce its coercive ends, right? Um, Hubbard, in his, in, in his theology, right, the way that Hubbard presents it, again, Scientology is always presented as a technology of the self, right? So what Hubbard is, but, but what's interesting is that Hubbard's suggesting that you are like you are because of the operation of systems that work exactly like the Mayan control system, right? So you are this way because you have been subjected to an intentional operation that used combinations of words and images to implant false ideas, false memories, um, maladaptive dispositions, uh, ineffective strategies in life into you and also into all the other thetans that make up the person that you think you are. And the way that we're going to fix that problem is to apply this technology of the self that will lead you towards increasing states of liberty, right? Towards, um, the, the, you know, you're going up the bridge to total freedom is what they call it. So, so their, their sort of diagnosis of the situation is, is in, in some ways similar in that they both have this kind of, um, they both have this extraordinarily flexible paranoia, right? Burroughs towards language in general and Hubbard, let's just assume for a moment that we're taking Hubbard at his word and he really believes all this shit, right? So for Hubbard, it's that the, the conclusion for, for Hubbard about the, um, the results of the Zemu implant is that the auditor has to be extraordinarily paranoid and flexible in their interpretation of what the PC says, because you never, it's never given that, that the person you're talking to is actually the PC because it could be a body thetan. And it's also never given that the person you're talking to um, is telling you something that they actually remember or think rather than giving you part of the R6 implant, which is sorry, the, the implant that, 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 that happens under Zemo is called is interchangeably referred to as incident two and R6. And Hubbard, it should be said, uh, was not, is not from this planet in a, in a deep time sense. And so he wasn't here for this and he never was R6. So he doesn't have any of these problems. Um, 
so I can, I can say more, but I wonder if. Yeah. So, um, Burroughs, I mean, one, one point that's sort of worth, um, bringing up perhaps is, um, you know, part, part of what you're, um, exploring here has a great deal of overlap with certain kinds of, um, you know, uh, well-known sort of late 20th century modes of critique, right? Um, and in fact, you know, Burroughs was someone whose work was um, was avidly read by people like Foucault and Deleuze and so on, right? Yeah. And so, you know, essentially what... <laughs> What you're describing in, in, I mean, in terms of Scientology itself, it's sort of both, um, you know, Hubbard is developing a kind of theory of, you know, what we might call sort of ideological interpolation of subjects at the same time that he's also actually actively developing his own techniques for um, performing such interpolation um, yeah, in, is, a, in a mode is... that he, in a mode that he claims to be, sort of liberating or, um, you know, that, that in other words, the, I mean, and this is part of what I, I think we could get into, but, um, you know, that, that what we see with Hubbard is the, that, um, you know, interpolation is soul is, is kind of presented as a, a release from this, this sort of other primordial interpolation. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that, um, so I guess attention in the way that I've been thinking about this or a, a, a point that I find hard to, to navigate is, is one that's, it's hard to navigate with all sort of contemporary and well-documented cult leaders, right? Which is the question is like, how much do you actually believe this stuff and how much are you just using this to control people? And, but, but I think, you know, let's just give Hubbard the benefit of the doubt and assume that he actually believes all this stuff. And he believes that, that what he is promulgating is a liberatory technology of, um, of the self. He also believes that um, he also believes that uh, being, I'm sorry to use so many Scientology jargon words, but being upstat, which is to say being a good compliant subject of Scientology's disciplinary regime, who is also making progress down the bridge to total freedom and contributing lots of money to the church, right? Um, he believes that to be, to be in that condition is really important. And he's the only person who can establish what, it is to be in that condition, but he can't be everywhere at once. So he has to figure out a system for equipping auditors to exercise increasingly fine degrees of control over people. And standard tech becomes that in a super interesting way, which is that, um, so standard tech, it, it, it's definitely the case that kind of the most obvious thing about standard tech is that there's really specific routines that you have to go through with individual preclears and you have to go through them in a certain order and you cannot deviate from them and you can't interpret what the PC is saying and you're not allowed to do any psychoanalysis or anything. You just go through the process. And if you go through the process, then you're supposed to achieve a result. But the problem is that um, as the process, as you, as you become more advanced in processes, they become more and more uh, concerned with individual experiences, both in this life and in a potentially infinite series of past lives. And so the introduction of narrative content, that's specific to the PC is inevitable and becomes increasingly large, right? Um, and 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 a question is how do you continue to maintain control over the PC as a subject, and how do you, how do you continue to be to be in some sense Zimu, right? To be the to be the person who's doing the subject structuring rather than the person who's being structured. 
as the clinical encounter becomes more and more specific to the person. And the way you do it is by, um, I mean, most superficially, the way you do it is with an e-meter, right? The way you do it is by interpreting your e-meter correctly to discern when the person is going in the right direction and when they're going in the wrong direction. But the other way that you do it is by setting up this very complicated, fascinating, effective, and um, Byzantine system of disciplinary checks. So the, the, there's the case, there's, there's a number of different offices that are prescribed by standard tech, right? So, so there's the auditor, the auditor's job is to go in and audit and that's it. And they're, and then when they're done, they write an auditing report and they submit it to the case supervisor. And there's not supposed to be any cases in any Scientology org that are not supervised by the case supervisor. The case supervisor determines whether the, whether the uh, intended outcome has been achieved. And if the intended outcome hasn't been achieved, then essentially the only potential reason for that is that standard tech isn't being applied, right? So it doesn't matter how closely the auditor adheres to the routine that's prescribed if the result is that the um, case supervisor just decides that they haven't actually achieved the standard result. So it, it introduces this kind of, um, this area of discretion, which is officially disavowed and exists for the auditor and the case supervisor where you've got to figure out how to, within, within the confines of standard tech, you have to figure out how to introduce discretionary elements that will induce the PC to achieve the standard result or, and the, or the desired result. And the desired result is to become the ideal Hubbardian subject, right? So, so it becomes this, um, and then there's, there's further layers of discipline. So there's also the, um, there's the ethics officer, there's the examiner, um, who's the person who's supposed to review the session and make sure that everything went, and, and the, 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 the case supervisor is specifically not allowed to talk to the auditor or the PC. The examiner is the person who does that. So the case supervisor decides if things are wrong, if they're wrong, it goes to the examiner and the examiner may call in the PC and try to figure out what's going on. And if that doesn't work, then there's something called a, um, uh, a comma, the committee of evidence that convenes a, a number of people who are in the org to figure out exactly what's gone wrong and why and who needs to be in what condition and who needs to be downgraded or upgraded or whatever. Um, but the system has the effect of introducing an extraordinarily flexible system of uh, technology of power and system of controlling people that also that's kind of motivated by extreme paranoia on the part of all the people who are involved in doing the auditing, because if anything goes wrong, they're going to be subject to these Kafkaesque disciplinary proceedings, which will not be, you know, the sort of vanilla stuff that we get in modern offices, but might be, you know, it might include being demoted from the, from being on the executive council of an org to being the janitor or something for a period of time until you can restore your status. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I guess the, the the point is that there's this kind of constant duality between um, the technology of the self that's being ostended and the technology of power that's being increasingly developed over time and becoming more and more effective and becoming more and more fractal and um, and decentralized in its capacity to exert these these um, determining forces of control over the development of individual subjects at every level of the organization, kind of emanating from the flagship Apollo down like some kind of Gnostic pleroma. So, I mean, kind of returning to something you remarked on earlier, one point um, we've often discussed is that, I mean, you know, you, you said that, um, you know, Hubbard had this ambition of basically his, his techniques um, being kind of um, taken up in the corporate world and, um, you know, essentially across society. 
Um, and I think you've sort of argued that in, in a sense, this did kind of happen, um, but not, you know, but because um, various sorts of management techniques kind of evolved in that direction, um, you know, regardless of any direct influence from him. Um, so I don't know if that is that a accurate characterization yeah. of that point. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's there's I, I'd say two things about that. One is that um, once you understand how the e-meter is used as a tool of discipline, it becomes immediately obvious how useful and productive it would be if you could use it in an annual performance review, and you could and you could develop your like imagine a world where your professional development is understood to also be spiritual development and your um, literal affluence, you know, your compensation, your status, whatever are understood to be lucid and um, reliable reflections of your interior spiritual state. There have been things like this before, like, you know, this is sort of Calvinism, right? But, um, but imagine, imagine a world where uh, progression through the stages of that development is mediated by a specially trained coach who has an allegedly infallible instrument that allows them to tell where you are. That's a pretty inviting and desirable world for like any HR official, right? Um, and, and again, I think the only reason that it didn't happen on a larger scale is just because Hubbard alienated everybody because he was so goddamn crazy. Um, but, uh, but also I, I think if you just look at, clearly Hubbard did not have direct lineal influence on American business culture, right? But the way that the HR department has evolved as this kind of impersonal bureaucracy that serves the interest of the employer, but allegedly is to some extent independent and certainly doesn't ever exercise individual discretion, but operates like a well-oiled machine according to policy and procedure and, and the lived reality that that's not always the case. And that in fact, um, you know, punitive and retaliatory stuff continues to happen under the auspices of human resources action throughout the business world and in other contexts that that all rhymes very much with, I, I guess it's like what you were saying earlier, right? Like Scientology appears, cast that whole system in a different light because it appears to be um, a sort of microcosmic, but much more extreme version of the same thing, of the same thing that's coming down the pike. Because in the 19, I mean, I haven't closely studied business practice and practices in the 1960s, but I know that they've evolved a lot since then. And I don't think that anything like the degree of discipline um, and the sort of flexible control systems that Hubbard elaborated aboard the flagship Apollo were available to people who were running, say, you know, factories where they were trying to get the workmen not to show up drunk. Yeah. I mean, just as a, a sort of tangential um, related point, I mean, in, <laughs> um, there was a, I, I don't know, I think I may have not have said this to you, but maybe you saw it anyway, but there was an article by Christian Parenti not too long ago about um, the, the origins of this, this thing called the privilege walk, you know, which is basically often used in kind of um, DEI trainings. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. And so oddly the, I mean, without getting into it too much, um, you know, it, it, the story is totally fascinating, but um, it does actually involve like the, the genesis of the privilege walk, you know, which is now quite ubiquitous seems to involve a sign, a sort of um, splinter cult that um, that separated off from Scientology. Um, oh, really? I, so, did, I did not know and about And then this. weirdly, it also involves um, Herbert Marcuse's widow. <laughs> but in any case, 
Um, that's you know perhaps a subject for another for a different episode, but um, but basically, um, it it's um, there was something called um, reevaluation counseling, and um, this was started by someone who had um, so somebody named Harvey Jackins. No, I've um, not heard of this. And in any case, he was um, he was on the board of directors of Scientology of of Dianetics, but then broke with Hubbard. So he would be one of these squirrels you talked about from that period, um, where basically he kind of took a bunch of stuff from Dianetics and then started his own um, his own uh, sort of um, cult, you know that that made use of some of the same techniques. So in any case, um, it it would seem to be in this context that this pri- the whole privilege walk practice was was um, initiated. I mean, that's um, not at all surprising. So, like that's exactly yeah. the kind of thing that Hubbard would have loved. Yeah, yeah. And so, in any case, it's uh, it's it's another example of how um, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I think in general, as you say, there, it's not as if there's some kind of direct influence, but um, there are kinds of um, odd infiltrations of the, the sorts of things that he was that he was working out into various sorts of management techniques and corporate trainings, you know, which which most recently, a lot of which have to do with, you know, things like implicit bias and um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. I think the whole, the, the conception of the, the conception of sort of the, um, the organization's responsibility to the individual being one of continually progressive tutelage enforced by discipline is something that, you know, certainly like, I, I guess the, the, the way that I think about it is that this is something that was coming down the pike that Hubbard um, clearly understood and, and, applied and developed in a way that was very advanced for its era and oddly familiar in retrospect. And I think this is important to, it's important to kind of resuscitate this narrative because even the best books on Scientology, when you study Scientology, it's very hard not to get bogged down in the sheer kind of over the top theatrical characteristics brutality of both Hubbard and, and Miscavige, the current church leader and, and of the things that, people who get out of the church say about what was going on and just, just how weird the whole thing is, how weird and brutal the whole thing is. And it's also hard with Hubbard to not, uh, to separate yourself from, to, to deal with the apparent contradiction that this guy who is really very low intellectual horsepower, apparently, according to his published work, like if you, if you generalize from his published work, nonetheless exerts this extraordinary influence on people and created these, extraordinarily sophisticated and prescient systems of control. And I mean, I think to go back to what I said at the very beginning, I mean, I think part of the reason that um, the even very good analysts of the Church of Scientology often get bogged down in those things is because really the, the Hubbard's written output was not the most important thing he did by far, right? Like writing books was not the deal. It was doing therapy, modeling it and teaching other people how to do it. Like he was a, he was a clinician educator above all and not a theologian. Um, so, uh, so, and, and in those, in, in, in the sort of modes of his, uh, of his practice and of the systems that he developed, I think he, I think, yeah, he, he, his work anticipated a lot of things that, um, subsequently came to pass. 
And by the way, in that regard, um, the one you just mentioned, another interesting uh, parallel with Jacques Lacan. Um, you oh, know, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, other than the écrit, you know, essentially his his output was um, entirely in the form of, of seminars, lectures, etc. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, and even in the écrit, like, a number of those are also lectures. So, so basically, yeah, he, um, <laughs> you know, had a similar timeline, um, a similar emergence from psychoanalysis, um, and a similar kind of, um, uh, I mean, obviously not, um, you know, he wasn't throwing people off ships, but, um, he, uh, was definitely reputed to be, um, a sort of, tyrannical um figure in many ways so in any case uh that that's perhaps a another um another thing to explore in the future but uh, you know but but something that would kind of have to do with that genealogy i mean obviously like within the french context you have lacan as one of the sort of um fundamental um influences on a whole generation of of thinkers for the way that he kind of re reintroduced and reframed the work of freud um, so we don't, you know, we, we wouldn't often think of Hubbard having, uh, any kind of comparable influence in that context. And yet somewhat through the genealogy that, that we've been tracing out, um, one could argue that isn't quite true. Um, so it's perhaps worth discussing the famous, uh, postscript on the societies of control by, uh, Deleuze here, because, you know, it's, it's worth noting that Deleuze seems to get this, um, this concept of control that he becomes interested in kind of late in his career from the work of Burroughs, right? And furthermore, what, what uh, Deleuze is trying to describe there is, you know, something that um, in, is a, a sort of evolution of society towards um, certain models that I think at least have, have a resonance with the kind of um, innovations you've been attributing to Hubbard, right? So in other words, um, you know, Deleuze and Societies of Control, he's interested in this kind of notion of a, a sort of um, a flexibilization, a sort of, um, you know, where um, there's sort of a, a seeming loosening of, of certain kinds of traditional um, structures which at the same time enables a far more kind of pervasive um, control structure, right? And he's also describing, you know, I mean, he, uh, you know, literally this, this, um, this whole thing that we've just been talking about, um, you know, one of the things he points to is that, you know, the, a sort of disciplinary in the Foucauldian sense notion of education as a kind of terminal process of enclosure within an institution um, is replaced with the notion of training, right? And here we might think of like, you know, when I have to do um, these online trainings just as part of keeping my job, right, on a regular basis. Um, so, you know, he, he's, he's interested in this kind of, um, this kind of modulation of how power functions. And a great deal of what he's describing, I think, does first of all, um, come out of certain ideas that he got from Burroughs, but based on what you've been telling us, that suggests there is a kind of odd 
um, genealogy linking us back to Hubbard. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, well, so, you know, like one wishes there were more direct connections and one wishes that like, I mean, Foucault was a vocal member of the anti-psychiatry movement, right? So like, it's just too bad that there's no, there's no clear evidence of a, that I'm aware of, of a personal meeting between Burroughs uh, and Foucault or between Hubbard and Foucault, the latter being somewhat harder to imagine than the former. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so, so absolutely, I think, it, I think it, it's definitely straightforwardly true to say that Burroughs' experience of Scientology extended his, um, it helped him to develop his notion of what control meant and what it looked like because he decided that that's what Scientology was. Um, and it also, uh, um, it also advanced his ideas for how you might evade such systems of control and how you might deal with them, including stealing their processes in order to subvert them, which is what he did with Scientology. I mean, it's that, that, that was, that was his avowed intent and that, and he continued to use the e-meter as far as I know for the rest of his life because he thought that it was useful. I mean, interestingly, I think, one of the things that kind of gets thrown out with the bathwater sometimes with Scientology is something that comes across really well in um, that Louis Theroux, the, the, the follow-up to the Louis Theroux movie where he's interviewing Marty Rathbun, who was the chief ethics officer for Scientology for years, like the sort of, you know, the chief of the Gestapo type. And uh, Rathbun puts him on, I think it's Marty Rathbun, but he puts him on the, um, on the cans and asks him like four simple biographical questions and immediately gets him into a place where he's thinking about something that he obviously finds terrifying and embarrassing. And he doesn't make him say what it is, but he's like, you know, th these things actually work. Like you can be trained to use this thing in a way that allows you to understand more about people than you would understand if they weren't on the cans. Um, anyway, so, so, uh, but, but, but the point was, I was just saying, I think it's straightforwardly true to say that Burroughs' encounter with Hubbard absolutely structured his subsequent work in elaborating his thoughts on the idea of control with the capital C and how it operates through language and how it operates through different kinds of societal trends and, and how one might attempt to resist it. So there is a, there is a lineal connection there. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think, um, this sort of, I, you know, again, I think it's probably worth, um, you know, perhaps more extensively at some point, um, you know, trying to think about how, how many correspondences we might find between, you know, the, the sort of basic features of, which again, I think, you know, part of what you're, part of what you're saying is that um, a lot of the accounts, as I understand it, is that a lot of the accounts of Scientology understandably focus on a, the more, um, the more extreme, uh, kinds of discipline that Hubbard imposed, right? You know, such as throwing people off boats. Um, and, you know, um, also uh, if you read the, uh, the right bio, you know, this, this basic, um, that basically, I mean, interesting that he, you know, this whole thing of psychiatric death camps, because essentially they, you know, they also essentially created a kind of network of, of camps, right? Indeed. Yeah. In which Indeed. they um, intern people who, you know, get on the wrong side of church authorities. For well, yeah. And that's, reason. that's in the seventies, like in the seventies is when they're building um, gold base outside of Paso Robles in California. And, and that's where they're doing things like um, the, the blow drill blow is a fascinating word in Scientology because it, it means to it, originally, it means to um, get rid of a, a body thetan. So, so you, the auditor can do it or the body thetan can do it. It means the same thing. If the auditor blows the body thetan, 
it means they do the process that makes the body thetan detach from the thetan that they're working on, at, at, at which point the th that, that body thetan is said to have blown or to blow. Um, but it also becomes used for apostasy. And in gold based, um, they elaborate the, uh, the, the blow drill, which is the drill that you undertake when someone has escaped from the gold based compound. Um, so, so individual apostates become kind of reconfigured as body thetans, except that you don't want them to blow. Um, right, right. So, yeah, no, and, and, and that's where but, there's the, the, there's also the famous story of, I think it's Miscavige who gets all of the top church executives in a room and forces them to play musical chairs until like two o'clock in the morning, telling them that like whoever, whoever's left in the left, you know, whoever's the last one in the chair is going to be the only one who keeps their job. And it ends up with like two people in their mid sixties, like savagely fighting over the last chair until one of them gets it. And then he like tells them that actually it was all a joke and they all still have their jobs and they need to get back to work in the morning. <laughs> right. So, but I, I think, you know, in some sense, like these kinds of, uh, bizarre narratives of, of sort of, um, you know, the, the sort of arbitrary exercise of, of quite brutal and sadistic power is, um, you know, in some sense might obscure, I think the qualities that you're, you're pointing to, right. Which is the, the creation of these structures that, you know, I mean, and, and another point you've made is that, you know, in some sense Hubbard's authoritarian character sort of, in, in a sense, got in the way of this larger project where he, um, he developed these kinds of these, these control techniques, right. That, um, you know, in theory were, were sort of designed to work, you know, without his direct oversight. Right. Um, yeah. and so, you know, that, that, I suppose that's sort of an interesting tension within the, within the story, which is that, you know, he was actually, pointing towards and and trying to develop these these techniques that could be applied pervasively and in a massively distributed way but um but his his need for a more a kind of cruder form of or his you know again sort of um seemingly innate authoritarian desire for a more just crude form of control over his associates um, in some ways kind of stymied that effort, if I'm understanding you right. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think like it, it's um, the interesting thing, the, the interesting thing about Hubbard and Burroughs is that they, they, at a, at a deep level, they have a similar diagnosis for what's wrong and what might be a way you could fix it. What they think is wrong is that, um, and, and, and both subsist in the same kind of basic under basic ontological and cognitive understanding of beings, which is that, um, so, the, so the thing that's wrong is that, or the, the, the basic feature of beings is that it's possible to predictably, in some sense, mechanically alter them at the most deep ontological and epistemological levels through specific calculated combinations of words and images. Like that's a thing you can do. That's a technology that you can develop and perfect to the point where you can control people's minds and more than control their minds, you can control literally who they are at the deepest conceivable level, right? So they both believe that to be true. I'm not totally sure what their common source is for that. I'm exploring the notion that it might be uh, Korzybski, but I haven't really, I haven't managed to draw a connection, like a, 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 a stemma showing where they both get that idea from, but they both definitely believe that. Um, and Hubbard believes that he, that, that, that a solution to, oh, so, so sorry, they both believe that about beings. They both believe that the problem with you, the PC, 
or Burroughs also believes with himself, is that those techniques have been applied to you and you have been deformed by them. And so you have to, so the, so the thing you have to figure out is how to get out of that situation, right? For Hubbard, his general assertion is that he got himself out of it using, quote, what I knew about man and the universe, end quote. Um, and that it's the result of his own kind of bootstrap labors that he's now passing on to everybody else. And he got a head start because he wasn't our sixth and he's a more, he was a superior being to begin with and whatever. Burroughs is much more humble about it. And he thinks that um, his, his task is both for himself and for other people out of general altruism to um, establish reliable means of disrupting systems of control such that there becomes a possibility of a space in which freedom could exist. So they, they believe they have the same ontology, they have the same epistemology, they have somewhat different um, configurations of what the basic problem of human, human existence is. They have similar solutions in terms of the techniques that they propose should be applied. But whereas Burroughs is a kind of um, anarchic liberationist who wants to see the kind of um, revolution that's elaborated in, for example, the pirate subplot of cities of the red knight literally spread across the world and have people literally change and abandon um, harmful and stultifying modes of existence. Hubbard's kind of just decided that like, this is the way it is. And the best he can do is to be in control of it, you know, is to, is to, is to be the one pulling the strings and doing the implanting. Um, and I think Burroughs clearly realizes this in, in the sort of latter part. And this is what motivates Burroughs' disengagement from the Church of Scientology is that he realizes that, that what's going on is the opposite of what he's um, attempting to do. But the reason he's attracted to it in the first place is because the ontology and epistemology are the same and the diagnostic prescription or the, the therapeutic prescription is also essentially the same as it is for him throughout his life. He right. says, he, yeah. he, he wrote in, a, I think like he sort of summed it up in 1972 in a Rolling Stone article when he said, Burroughs said, um, that Scientology is a model control system, a state, in fact, with its own courts, police, rewards, and penalties. It's based on a tight in-group like the CIA, Islam, the Mormons, etc. Inside are the rights with the truth. Outside are the commies, the infidels, the unfaithful, the suppressives. Right. And I mean, this does, you know, it, it, when you read about <clears throat> um, how the church functions, it, it, I mean, it is remarkable just the degree to which it... Um, it feels as if you're reading about people who have sort of, I mean, and obviously on one level, they're subject to these, these, um, these harsher and more um, kind of arbitrary and crude forms of discipline. But, you know, th th there is this odd sense of these people who have in some way opted into this pervasive control regime, right. That, that the rest of us are not for the most part aware of. Um, well, and there's also, there's generations of them now, right. So there's like yeah. the, to me, some of the most interesting narratives come from people who were born and raised in the church and who, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's a sufficiently totalizing ideology and series of practices that um, it definitely profoundly alters the behavior and internal life of people who are converted from something else and who start from a different basis. But it seems to be a very extraordinary experience to grow up in the church of Scientology because, you know, you met, like these, these techniques are effective on people on like grown people who have already established their subjectivity through formative experiences like college education and stuff. I mean, imagine how effective they are on neonates. Yeah, no, it's, um, so I think, um, again, 
I mean, another another point I wanted to touch on relating to what we've been discussing is, you know, I, I think this also ties into um, the the Deleuze postscript, um, which is, you know, the the way that part of how this new um, sort of control regime is is sort of sold is as a a mode of liberation, right? And so I think, yeah. you know, and, and this is where, you know, th- this isn't an unfamiliar idea, right? That the sort of um, the counterculture in, in many ways sort of begets the, the new forms of, of control that emerge um, in the sort of post-industrial era. And, or, or to put it differently, you know, power kind of um, becomes, um, sort of embraces the liberatory rhetoric of the counterculture, right? And you know, so <laughs> I think the fact that you have this kind of um, pivot between Burroughs and Hubbard, where, as you say, essentially their outlook is is highly similar. Um, one of, but one of them goes in this direction of a kind of um, a kind of you know anarcho libertarianism, and the other simply attempts to. Um, articulate a more a, a new and more complete a mode of control, which is sold as a, a path to fr- a bridge to freedom. Um, you know that this I think could be seen to resonate with this kind of broader cultural trend that's often been observed, and that you know is is also in what what Deleuze discusses. Yeah, I mean, um, so Burroughs was put in a condition of treason in 1969, the year after he had actually started his formal courses in Scientology. And he, he was served with a, with a, with an order that he was in a condition of treason. Um, and uh, interestingly, I mean, interestingly throughout the rest of the year, he actually he continued squirreling and continued extolling the benefits of the techniques that he had learned in the church. Um, and, but in 1970, he, uh, according to David Wills said to Graham Masterton, who was the editor of Mayfair, the, the magazine that he was writing for when he first infiltrated Scientology that, um, quote, I think uh, he said, sorry, quote, every time in recorded history that somebody has invented something that helps to, to uh, sorry, so that helps to set people free, somebody else will quickly come along and take control of it and turn it into an instrument of oppression and control. Um, Burroughs is thinking of this as a timeless phenomenon, but definitely like it's the case that, it's the case that um, Scientology was attractive to people for some of the same reasons that like the hippie movement was attractive to people in that, you know, I mean, think about it. You're like, you're 25 years old in 1967. You just finished college in a boring Midwestern university. Your parents are unintelligible to you as is the society that you live in, which appears to just be a sort of harsh machine of conformity and death. And there's this kind of charismatic avuncular figure who has his own boat and is like, we're going to be cruising around the Mediterranean and learning how to exteriorize from our bodies. Do you want to come? Um, I mean, it, Definitely, it, it, it's something that, that, that it's hard to imagine given the way that contemporary accounts focus on kind of what came later and what happened to those people after they got on the boat. But um, it's important to remember that, uh, that particularly in the 60s, Scientology was absolutely received as being part of the counterculture. And this, as, as, as were, um, I mean, the anti-psychiatry movement is, again, a great place to look at this because like Artie Lang is setting up his crazy asylum without walls or, you know, patients or doctors in East London and people are smearing the walls with shit. And, you know, it's, it, it, it was a heady time. And um, 
the, the sort of rhetoric of liberation was definitely a part of the appeal of, of particularly early Scientology. Um, and they, I mean, I think as it, they, they pulled back several times from the, I mean, Hubbard personally and specifically pulled back several times from the sort of authoritarian excesses. Um, and I think, I think it's his annual address from either 68, from, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's from 68. So it's, it's, there's, a, there's an annual address that's from 68 that's really, really interesting because it's happening at the same time as the class eight course is going on, right? So like in the same year, he's given a lecture called Ethics and Case Supervision where he, you know, assists, lays out the sort of cosmological basis and Ethics and Case Supervision lays out the sort of practical nitty gritty of how you enforce standard tech and how you assign conditions and how you make sure that the org is running the way it's supposed to using these techniques of control and these, these sort of bureaucratic structures of control. Um, incidentally, it's the same address where he lists recent converts to Scientology, including Sammy Davis Jr., Leonard Cohen, and William S. Burroughs. Um, but so there, there's this, there's, but, but, but in the same lecture, he announces that, that some of the policies that were, um, that were particularly noxious, um, like for example, disconnection. So disconnection is something that, that existed past this point, but in 1968, Hubbard formally declares that it's now, that, that, that this policy that people who are found to be connected to a suppressive person must disconnect from that suppressive person. So if, you, if it turns out that like your wife doesn't like you being a Scientologist and that's discovered to be because she's suppressive, then like you have to get divorced, you have to leave her, you know, that, that policy is canceled. And Hubbard kind of owns that he that, that it was an overstep and that it, it it made too many people unhappy and that you know they don't want to alienate their friends and make Scientologists miserable and so they're gonna they're gonna have more mild forms of remedy for that kind of situation. But at the same time, while he's publicly disavowing the more brutal excesses of early Scientology discipline, he's privately you know in the, in the confidential confines of the Class A course, instructing a new generation of auditors and how to and how to achieve a similar level of control through the application of more subtle and variegated techniques. Um, another thing that I thought we should touch on before we wrap up is, um, <laughs> you know, you brought up before the, um, the uh, Burroughs's um, Cities of the Red Knight, you know, which is this kind of, um, you know, again, sort of anarcho-libertarian fantasy about um, pirates um, creating these kind of autonomous zones. Um, and, you know, this resonates with the sort of maritime themes of L. Ron Hubbard's uh, career and also with a, an early novel he wrote, I believe, pre, you know, pre-Scientology when he was largely known as a hack writer. Um, under the Black Ensign. Under the Black Ensign, which concerns uh, pirates. So I'm curious, uh, I, know, I know you've been, um, I believe, attempting to write something about this. Um, I'm curious if there's anything you'd be willing to uh, oh, totally, indulge on totally. that front. I mean, this is part of my, so, so uh, I guess the two points of connection that I've found most fascinating to, to explore between Hubbard and Burroughs, because they unlock so many different doors, are the homology between the R6 implant and the cut-up method and the plots of under the black ensign, which I was also forced to read on a bet. Um, and uh, full disclosure by me, I believe. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it in case you didn't want to say, but <laughs> um, and cities of the red knight. So, so cities of the red knight has like three subplots, but, um, and they, they're largely standalone. 
uh, the pirate subplot is about a young man named Noah who um, signs on with Noah Blake, who signs on with a crew, uh, he signs onto a ship believing that he's going to, um, you know, undertake his journeymanship as an armorer or something. And it turns out that the ship is actually a pirate ship that's captained by uh, the charismatic Captain Nordenholtz. Um, and the whole thing is the whole thing is sort of explicitly modeled on um, the articles of uh, Libertatia, which was a an actual sort of collective, not a state, but a collective that was established by um, a, a British naval officer named Captain Mission in the 18th century, um, before it was, I think, destroyed by native people. Um, but anyway, that, so 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 Burroughs is obsessed with. Libertadia because it was basically an all-male society of seafaring pirates who decided to sort of live according to the principles of the French Enlightenment and codified that in articles. Um, so uh, so what, what ends up happening is like the, the fantasy of Libertadia and of the and of the the pirate ship as, as a space for um, the development of a truly egalitarian libertarian society bound together by confraternity and um, fealty to principles of enlightened civilization um was was incredibly seductive to him and so so they follow the the crew of the pirate ship who um go through a series of uh both temporal and mystical experiences and um devise new systems of like ballistic weaponry that they conceive while having hallucinogenic sexual encounters with each other i mean this is bros right so you know um and who ultimately inaugurate a kind of who succeeded in disrupting the system of control, right? Through at, at a series of levels from the production of new forms of actual arms um, and ammunition to the dissemination of, of these kinds of decentralized principles of self-government. Um, and at the end of the book, they're sort of, they're, they're making progress in like destabilizing the Spanish empire in the new world. Um, and then there's a very weird, the, the final chapter is a very weird bit of sort of time sorcery where Noah Blake is cast into the future um, and uh, carrying documents recounting his existence in the 18th century. Um, and it's kind of implied that, that the, uh, the pirates were successful and that worked out in ways that were um, both good and bad. Um, the under the black ensign. So Hubbard, as I've written elsewhere, um, has a kind of fascinating uh, relationship with the sea over the course of his life. His father, as I said earlier, was a naval officer. Officer, he undertook a series of quixotic voyages throughout his um, youth, uh, sometimes involving collaborators and sometimes alone with his wife. Um, and then he spent some time ashore developing dynamics and Scientology, but then went back to sea in the flagship Apollo, which was a converted cattle ferry along with two other boats that were sort of the, the fleet of Scientology. And he essentially remained um, uh, aboard ship for like, you know, a decade or so before he was eventually driven to ground um, in the United States where he, he hid out for the rest of his life. Um, so so he, he spent a lot of time thinking about the ocean and pirates and stuff. And um, under the Black Ensign is, I mean, they're sort of emblematic of their two general sort of styles and approaches to existence. So whereas, the whereas the pirate ship serves for Burroughs as a, as a space for imagining um, the conditions of success for the experiments in 
evading systems of control that he is ambitious to define and then their generalization throughout the world and the, and the, the, um, the overall subversion of, of larger systems of control. Um, for Hubbard, it, it's, it's, I don't know, it's interesting. There's a, there's a, there's a point, I mean, I've written about the, I've kind of given the pressy of the plot elsewhere, which you can link to if you want. Um, but uh, there's this kind of interesting mid zone where um, the, so, so it's, it's about a guy who's not a pirate who ends up being kidnapped by pirates. And then there's a girl who's dressed as a boy who's on the ship with him who also ends up with the pirates, but she still pretends to be a boy. And um, so, you know, in order not to be ravished and whatever, then the pirate ship is wrecked and they end up on an island um, on a desert island with a bunch of uh, like slaves because it's slave ship also gets shipwrecked. I don't remember exactly how it happens, but somehow they end up on this desert island with a bunch of African slaves and it's uh, the protagonist and the woman who's dressed as a boy who throughout this entire segment is referred to by her boy name and apparently continues to wear the boy clothes, even though the pirates are no longer around. And I don't think the African, you know, the freed African slaves care. Fascinatingly, they kind of establish a society that's analogous to the one that Burroughs elaborates in cities of the red Knight. So it's, 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 I mean, it's genderqueer, first of all, right? Like the, 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 what, what you expect to happen, which is that this will be the point at which the protagonist sleeps with the girl who's been dressing as a boy does not happen. And in fact, he continues to treat her as a boy and to address her using male pronouns. Um, and it's also colorblind. At some point, these two like Dutch captains show up and they're like, ah, we will help you and your slave, or how much do you want for your slaves? And the protagonist is, you know, very, um, boldly says that these are not slaves. These are my brothers, you know, da, da, da. Um, so they, Hubbard is clearly like intrigued by the possibility of this Libertadia like colony, but then he completely destroys it by bringing everybody back to the mainland, having the protagonist pardoned by the King. And then he immediately marries the, um, the girl who's been pretending to be a boy and uh, the, the heteronormative and race-based power hierarchy of the 18th century Caribbean is restored in one fell swoop. Um, so, so I think that the two of them are kind of, and the reason that I've been thinking of trying to write something about them is that those two narratives when considered in parallel really bring out a lot of the things that we've been discussing about both of their approaches to life. Um, and now that I think about it, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's an interesting homology that both of them fixate on, on the pirate ship, on the sort of like all male society cut off from any other sources of authority um, or control as, as the laboratory in which this kind of thing can be developed successfully, whatever this kind of thing turns out to be. So I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up and uh, hopefully well, maybe, will, yeah. the, last thing, the last thing I'd say is that it, in thinking about, you know, pirate ships and stuff, like it's worth remembering that where does Hubbard end up? Hubbard does end up on a pirate ship. Like right. he, he doesn't end up on a is not allowed in various ports. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. He's not he's not committing lots of acts of piracy, but he is committing lots of illegal acts that cause him to be expelled from or barred from entry into the countries that that uh, line the Mediterranean. Um, and it's it's precisely there in this environment that both men in their younger days imagined as, or he in his younger days and Burroughs in his later days imagined as this potential laboratory of liberation that he that he develops the systems that we've been talking about that he applies himself to becoming the implanter rather than um, liberating people from, from implantation in general. So that that's in there. Yeah. Great. Well, I do hope the uh, written version of, of this, 
you know, argument will um, will appear at some point. So when it does, uh, you know, perhaps we can talk about it again or um, at minimum, I will definitely uh, share it with um, with listeners. So, yeah. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. This is it's it's a it's a joy to talk about. God knows why, but absolutely, <laughs> the kids need to stop. <laughs> yeah, okay. and and I believe we will be adding some uh, some audio from Hubbard's lectures into the uh, show. Yeah, I'm gonna send you some so, samples. Great. All right, cool. Look forward to that. All right. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks. There were 250 billion on this planet. The name of this planet was Tigiak, and this is known as the bomb place, and this is the evil place. This is the place where they all got smashed. You wonder today where you see large areas of where the alleged volcanic action has been, those are our six explosions, the remains of them. If you go down through many layers of civilizations archaeologically, you come to green glass. After this, however, up about a, the remainder of the 36 days, which is the bulk of them, is taken up with a 3D super colossal motion picture, uh, which has to do with God, the devil, uh, space opera, uh, etc. They go five pictures to five words, and we have the full record of what it is. And uh, it goes on for about 36 days, and then these poor bastards were let wander out. To make a long story short, there's even a motion picture studio in it. They even give the writers and so forth of the thing. They, they, they had several tricks that they used. They can make a full figure appear in the room, which looks totally solid and totally 3D to the person. It has not generally been accepted here on Earth that such things existed. But I noticed that we have what's known as science fiction here on Earth. I noticed we have that. And noticing it many, many, many years ago, I thought this is a good gag, so I wrote a lot of it. You wouldn't dare write real science fiction. Not, not, not real science fiction. <laughs> Nobody's guts could take it. Space is wild. Uh, there aren't any writers down here, and there's no audience down here that could take, that could take real stuff about space. It's wild.